This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. My name is Michael McFall, and I'm the Deputy Director of FSI. I'm also a professor of political science here at Stanford and a Hoover Fellow. Uh, despite my voice, I do not have the H5N1 virus. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, I've spoken to several doctors before coming here, including some of them who are in the hall today. I think I'm, uh, uh, I, I was sick several days ago, but I've been speaking uh, um, nonstop for the last four days. And of those of you who have heard me speak before, you know I like to yell and scream and holler. Uh, that won't be happening today. In fact, I want to be quite brief in my remarks because I have to speak at the next panel as well. Um, when my wife saw the program, and I said, do you want to come? Uh, and she asked, well, why aren't you having this on Halloween? And I didn't get the joke. And uh, she said, because this is the scariest set of talks I've ever seen. There's no way in hell I'm going to come to this. And I thought she was being a bit exaggerated. Uh, but we've been building and building, and especially after that last uh, luncheon talk, interestingly enough, uh, I think she was right. This is the Halloween uh, uh, day. Um, and secondly, it really makes me think we have a whole lot of work to do, my friends. For those of you who are at Stanford, uh, there is a lot of stuff out there that we, we need to be busy. So no more vacations, no more sabbaticals, no more going to Bellagio for conferences. Uh, we have a lot of work before us. Uh, regrettably, the nightmare is not going to end yet. Uh, we're going to have one more and maybe a few more after in the breakout sessions where we're adding layers to things that you should all be worried about. We've talked about big things, countries. We've talked about the individuals. And now we're going to talk about infrastructure and energy. And like all the other panels we've had today, we basically went out and found the best uh, to do what we're going to do. Uh, uh, a mentor of mine 20 years ago here at Stanford, when I was a Stanford student, or maybe 25 years ago by now, um, said, Mike, the one, what you got to do in your field is you have to just be the best. Uh, and then you can dabble in other things. But you have to be the absolute best. Not number three, not number two, but the absolute best in what you do. And when speaking about the two topics that we are putting together today, we have the two absolute best. Uh, and thankfully, one of them we've stolen away from the Council on Foreign Relations, and maybe with the proper foresight uh, down the road, we'll steal the other one from the Council on Foreign Relations. Stephen Flynn will speak first. He's the Gene uh, uh, Kirkpatrick Senior Fellow for National Security Studies at the Council. He's also a retired commander from the US Coast Guard. And quite simply, he's one of our world's leading experts, national experts, on homeland security. He's contributed to this debate in many ways, both working with the Hart-Rudman Commission in 2000-2001, then assembling them again for a Council on Foreign Relations Task Force called AMICA, still unprepared, still in danger. He's written on this subject himself as an author, uh, America the Vulnerable, How Our Government is Failing to Protect Us from Terrorism, and his forthcoming book on the same theme, lots of the same kind of verbs, The End, The Edge of Disaster, Catastrophic Storms, Terror, and American Recklessness. So if you thought it was bad at lunch, hold on to your chairs. 
He's a graduate from the Coast Guard Academy and his PhD is from the Fletcher uh, School of Law and Diplomacy. David Victor, who used to be at the council and we thankfully have stolen him away, he is a professor at the law school. Uh, he is also uh, the director uh, of our program at FSI on energy and sustainable development. Uh, his work looks at the geopolitical uh, environmental consequences of global energy production and use. He used to be at the council. I guess he's maybe you're still an, you're an adjunct still, so he's here at least some of the time. He travels a lot, uh, but he's adjunct still at the council, and he also was the author of one of their task forces called National Security Consequences of U.S. Oil Dependency. Um, he is also a prolific author. I won't go through all of it, but his latest books include The Collapse of the Kyoto Protocol and The Struggle to Slow Global Warming. We're going to start first with Homeland Security uh, with Steve, and then we'll move to David, who will speak about energy shocks and the global system. Steve, thanks for being here. Thank you so much. It's really quite an honor to be here and uh, be with my former colleague, uh, David Victor, who we arrived, I think, at the council just about the right time. Uh, it was the time together here a few years back, and he got wooed to this wonderful part of the world. I'm quite fortunate to have this thing called, I guess, a consulting professor. I'm still trying to figure out what it is at CSAC. Uh, but what we want to say here is I've derived benefit from it. I'm not sure if I provide anything back, but I had the opportunity to uh, do a dry run slash murder board on this new book uh, that I have coming out in February and uh, derived enormous benefit from this interdisciplinary you know, uh, cabal of folks who actually come at these issues in so many different directions. And I, I hope, uh, I know the product is better as a result of the enterprise. I don't know if it's still, we'll see if it passes ultimate muster when we get out and about here, but it's really been an honor to have the association I've have had. And this is just a thrill to be here today. It certainly has been sobering stuff that we've been dealing with along the way here. And what I'd like to do is a little bit, actually, you'll be pleased to know I did a, we've just uh, revised the, uh, my uh, subtitle for the new book. Of course, there's another cheery book called The Edge of Disaster, uh, Building on America, The Vulnerable. Uh, good beach book. Uh, but the, the new subtitle, and it's a theme I really want to develop here today, is called Rebuilding a Resilient Nation. And I think this is what's really a message that we got from our very first panel this morning. While there's doom and gloom out of the air, I think, you know, Secretary Shields did that great job of reminding us that, you know, leadership is fundamentally about looking out there and the horizon and imagining and then help directing us to get to where we need to go. I always define with my cadets, I used to have a class that I taught back at the Coast Guard Academy before I came to the council in the late 90s, and it was on drugs, uh, organized crime, and, and uh, transnational threats, which my students unofficially named uh, uh, that it was a commander, Commander Flynn's doom and gloom class. And uh, what I always, though, started it off was reminding the folks here that I think always a fundamental element of leadership is to acknowledge and look at reality square in the eye and accept what that is. But the other central greeting is the point direction where we need to go with a sense of optimism that we can get there. Nobody at the end of the day will follow a pessimist. You know, when you say the world's going to hell, nobody's going to follow you to hell. Right, so it's fundamentally we have to address these problems, I think, with very clear eyes. But it's not because that's the future. That's where we have to be. And this is certainly something that I've come through uh, as I deal with these dark issues that, uh, that we've uh, been a part of the, uh, this conference today. I'd like to do in my remarks is to frame a little bit the evolution of my thinking 
on this security challenge, as we call it, the Homeland Security Challenge, and get you to where I am right now, and sort of tease you through that because I think it's important for us to evolve our thinking away from the kind of security paradigm we're in today, and particularly one that has this rather myopic view of terrorism as the apocal threat that can, that, of our time. Uh, we, we need to step back and think about this, I think, and there's been a lot of very fuzzy thinking going on. To, to set the stage for this, I, I came at this issue uh, pre-9-11 working with the Hart Rubin Commission, the U.S. Commission on National Security. And I essentially got drew into this enterprise because the commission was set up uh, in 1998, essentially do look at the national security challenges that confront us to see whether we have an appropriate strategy and what's the proper organization force structure we should have going ahead. But it was set up classically in U.S. style, water's edge out. The domestic dimension of this was assigned to former Governor Jim Gilmore to look at the domestic preparedness to deal with terrorism issue. And I thought rather remarkably, it took about a year into this, but the, national, the U.S. Commission on National Security discovered that actually the terrorism issue, which they got involved with here, was a transnational challenge. And they couldn't possibly talk about this issue unless they looked at issues like borders and how we deal with those, and also internal domestic security issues. And as soon as they did that, they found that they didn't have anybody in the commission who was actually doing that. So I was dragooned out of my Coast Guard hat. Uh, the then former commandant of the Coast Guard sent me in, hoping that I could help the Coast Guard out by getting it into the process. And then Leslie Gale, who was the president of the council, brought me born to the council to be a part of that enterprise. And what I guess I found myself, uh, and of course that commission came to the conclusion that the number one challenge for us in the national security challenge for the 21st century would be a catastrophic terrorist attack on U.S. soil and that we're not organized or prepared to deal with this. And we rolled this out in January 2001. I think when Mike Osterholm was making this case here just a few minutes ago about the difficulty of getting media to pay attention. This was a very uh, painful moment. Uh, the, the commission rolled out its report in the Mansfield room, in the ceremonial room in the Senate side of the Capitol, with 12 of the 14 commissioners, you know, these, these great wise men and women who looked at this issue, bipartisan and so forth, and not a single major media news outlet showed up to cover it. Uh, it was the Defense Weekly, I think, in the Pentagon Daily or whatever the heck it was. So we actually got direction from uh, Gary Hart and Warren Rubman that, you know, write an op-ed, get it to the Times, which we did, and the Times declined to publish. And so it was a really, I can understand why people don't pay attention to me, <laughs> but I was really taken back that the stature of this, this is a congressionally mandated three-year study, and it was a sort of collective yawn at the time. Well, after 9-11, of course, happened, there was a great deal of discovery of that commission's report, as with other reports. But I would argue, on my core issue here, everything did not change with the 9-11 event, particularly when it came to national security. And this was a part of my critique that I published a couple of years ago in America to the Vulnerable. Essentially, what we, did, we didn't do was rethink national security in the context of this new threat. What we really did is took our existing national security apparatus and put it on steroids and called the new issue that confronted us all of 9-11, which was a terrorist attack here on U.S. soil, not by people who were here, by people who didn't import a weapon of mass destruction, but used a domestic commercial, commercial airliner as one, and where many of the costs were self-inflicted by things that we did to ourselves because we were in spooked, rather than address those challenges as national security issues, we call that homeland security. 
When, when the President announced it just two weeks after 9-11 before the Joint uh, Chambers of Congress, I recall sort of looking at the Joint Chiefs' face as they panned the, the, this thing and they announced Governor Tom Ridge from Pennsylvania would be the new guy taking this account. You could almost see the collective sigh of relief across the faces of the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs. You know, the Joint uh, almost got that new job. We didn't really think about national security confronting these issues. We had to bifurcate it because that the whole structure didn't want to come water's edge in, both by law in some cases, the posse comitatus rule and so forth here, but clearly by orientation. The whole way in which we've done national security for much of our history have been going after our power over there or protecting our interests over there and therefore having being able to pursue I'm sorry, this is my fourth talk as well <laughs> this many day, to pursue happiness here. And this made obviously a great deal of sense, especially during the Cold War, where we were dealing with containment and we are dealing with thermonuclear war, that we essentially had a national security apparatus that was very much looking out and dealing with problems there. So my critique was that not that, that we didn't have a new threat that was the threat that we had to deal with, but that we really weren't restructuring ourselves to confront this threat in a way that it would require, to address the fact that, that our critical infrastructure was in fact the new likely targets that terrorists essentially could find our borders and get across them and they were very difficult to spot, that our intelligence apparatus was not up to speed for eliminating every act of terror overseas. And that we therefore would have to deal with this as a fundamentally a transnational issue where the lines between domestic and international were truly blurred. This bifurcation, I would argue, has had profound dislocations in terms of how we've approached it. And I think I've sort of over time evolved to an explanation for why we persist doing what we're doing, even given the dearth of results, in some cases, the counterproductiveness of a approach that lies almost exclusively on offense in which we place so much of these as on Iraq. But well, let me just provide this as an illustration of just how disconnected we really are. This year, the Department of Defense will receive just over $16 billion to do something called force protection. Force protection is basically to protect U.S. military assets from attacks by terrorists. So it's basically U.S. military bases or assets like naval ships, uh, like the U.S. coal. So they're receiving just over $16 billion to do that. $12 billion of that is for U.S. bases and assets on U.S. soil. Okay, keep that number in mind. This last spring, the Department of Homeland Security announced that they were going to provide grants for critical infrastructure protection for the highest risk cities around the country. The total amount of money for this grant is to protect things, everything from bridges and water treatment and chemical facilities and other kinds of things that cities identified as high risk was $763 million. We are spending more money protecting the port of San Diego than all the West Coast ports combined. Now why are we doing that? The Navy is operating out of San Diego. LA Long Beach brings in 43% of all the containers that come into our country, 25% of all our energy needs west of the Rocky Mountains, and that is not used, viewed by the Department of Defense as a national security asset because there's no gray ships that leave it. Therefore, it fights with other urban areas, non-security urban areas, uh, to fight for a handful of dollars we make available things like port security. Think, think of how crazy this is. We are hardening U.S. military targets on U.S. soil so we make civilian targets more attractive. Essentially, we are setting ourselves up for uh, our Defense Department doing a better job protecting itself than us. Now, 
that's not intentional. But it's a basic structural process in how Washington works as the Department of Defense puts its budget together, realizes you do some counterterrorism thing, 16 billion looks like a rather like a rounding error for them as things that they should do. It cooks up through the Office of Management Budget Oversight for Defense Planning, screams through that very well and gets to the Hill, nobody's anti-national security, everybody grabs the budget like a beer hug and screams through. But when you get to issues like providing money to protect critical infrastructure for cities, which are the more likely targets. I mean, think about it. You're a terrorist on U.S. soil. Option one, go after military base in San Diego where very fit men with rifles and other kind of tools of, of destruction look and willing to use it and able, or B, Port of Oakland. Which of the two do you like? And so, but what we have here is a situation because of this, the, the, the bifurcation between national security and homeland security, where we don't have this as a trade-off issue. Would another dollar for Oakland be better spent than the dollar we're using to protect the naval ship down in San Diego? Or even another naval ship? We don't have that conversation. Why not? I would argue that fundamentally we're dealing with a classic orthodox view about federalism and also views about the role of government vis-a-vis -vis the private sector that is essentially completely undermine any effective effort dealing with our vulnerability here at home and our preparedness to deal with the kinds of threats uh, that confront us by not just terrorists but natural disasters. The only thing in an orthodox view of, of orthodox view of federalism allows the federal government to do with lots of resources is traditional national security beyond our shores. There is no contention that that is inherently a federal responsibility. Only the federal government can do it, and therefore we should provide the care and feeding that our forces need to take battles to enemy. But as soon as we get into looking at critical infrastructure, we bump into the reality that 85% of it is privately owned, and it's located in states and cities. So the federal role in there suddenly comes into a clash between the marketplace and a state and local's responsibilities traditionally providing emergency repair, preparedness and response. The federal government doesn't want to go there. It basically wants to continue to redefine the threat, or, or continue to define the threat in ways that are comfortable, I would argue, that allows it to play its traditional role without sort of mixing up the pot on these issues related to, uh, should we be calling national security issues related to critical infrastructure or local preparedness? Ports very much fall into this paradigm because we don't actually have a federal port system. Ports are all managed at the local level and or best state by state authorities, as in Virginia, for instance. But here it's, a, it's the uh, city of Oakland, Los Angeles and Long Beach share the same geographical harbors, geographical port, but you have two different municipalities who actually uh, have responsibility oversight for that port. And for our, our entire nation's history, the federal government's role in ports has been very narrow. My old organization, the Coast Guard, has, legislative, has federal statutory authority for certain rules, but it's not who gets to work in the port and how it operates and the rest of that here. That's managed at the local level. So what we end up with is a situation where we have this very critical infrastructure where all the responsibility for securing it and protecting it has largely been dealt with at the local level. Now that's a problem, there's another core problem I want to highlight here with regard to the approach we've taken national security versus homeland security to deal with this new terrorist threat risk. Ports are really on-ramps to off-ramps to other ports. And therefore what we're dealing with is a global network of, that basically supports global supply chains and transportation logistics systems 
that allow us to outsource around the planet, to have these compressed inventories, and to basically deal with increasingly compressed uh, production cycles around things we buy and so forth here, operating on a global scale. To basically deal with this as a homeland security issue is a bit like hiring a computer network uh, security manager who basically says, I'm only going to protect the server next to my desk. You know, it's too complicated to go out to all those other servers and, and, and computers out there. Ultimately, managing the homeland security threat of our ports requires us to look at this as a global system and manage it within that context, but basically our national security apparatus, our foreign policy folks, intelligence apparatus, they don't do homeland security, i.e. ports and containers. That's the domestic security job. They do weapons of mass destruction and, and wars with Iraq and so forth. So we've got this very convoluted problem. Let me so sum up this particular part here, I want to evolve to the next key part of my presentation, which is my core critique up to 2004 was that we were not, in fact, acknowledging the new character's threat and redefining national security to adapt to it because of this, this artificial uh, divide, in fact, this firewall we are putting between national security and homeland security and all the implications that, flew, that arrived from it. Well, let me state starkly here, I was operating up to this point with a core belief that this was the threat of our time, was dealing with this terrorism issue, and that the, the issue is how we got it right, how we combat terrorism right. I do not hold that view today. Largely because of what we heard at lunch today, but also because of Katrina. I cannot find a national security threat out there, except for thermonuclear war, which terrorism can't, terrorists can't do, that can get me to the level of loss of property and loss of life that a, a pandemic poses, and certainly not, and, and also even in terms of scale of destruction that you got with Katrina on our Gulf Coast states. And I don't think I was ever more angry or frustrated as an American citizen and a former uh, military officer, Coast Guard officer, watching our government's arthritic, incompetent, response to Katrina, where there was an almost complete abrogation of authority at the federal level because this was a state and local responsibility to take care of. The Department of Defense, we have the 82nd Airborne, able to be anywhere on the planet in 18 hours notice, took six and a half days, six and a half days to get from North Carolina to New Orleans, to get people off of roofs with rising waters. So I came to the conclusion here that what we really are missing here is that we should be thinking a core function of government is to look out for our safety and well-being. And in fact, there are higher probability and potentially higher consequence threats that are going to arise from acts of God more than acts of man. And yet, we have essentially a system set up where we put all our public policy resources and leadership and emphasis on dealing with the potential acts of man. I think we have to rethink this. I th and when you do that, you immediately come into this redefining what federalism really is and how it's going to work in the context of a globalized facing future disasters. One of the things that when I started to make that light bulb went on is I started looking around and said, you know, really the lesson, bookending 9-11 with Katrina, the core lesson here is that we've becoming a very brittle society. Terrorists can get a huge bang for their buck because we basically can't take a punch. We're very good still delivering punches if we know where to throw them. But in terms of taking them, 
That's not something we're very good at anymore. Katrina was a disaster, but it became, the hurricane was, but the catastrophe were as a result of acts of omission and commission that made that truly a devastating event. The, the 19th Street Canal failed two hours before the eye of Katrina uh, crossed into the city at 6.30 a.m. When it arrived in New Orleans, 75 miles from the coast, it was barely at a Category 1. The surge, the sea, uh, surge level here was at 12 feet, well within the parameters of the flood control system. Part of the problem here was, in 2004, the Army Corps engineers, the people responsible for the flood control system, had identified they needed just over $22 million to conduct emergency repairs on the flood control system. The Bush administration said, you'll get by with $3.9 million. Congress said, we'll give you five and a half. The following year, 2005, Corps engineers said, no, we really have $22 million. These are for emergency repairs. Administration this time said, we'll give you $3 million. Part of the issue here is this brittleness is we have infrastructure we inherited from our grandparents and great-grandparents, in my case, that basically we are like grandchildren who have moved into a mansion who said we're not going to do the upkeep. we got a lovely mansion out here. We're just not going to check the plumbing. We're not going to look at the wiring. And we're not even going to maintain it, never mind upgrade the place. This infrastructure vulnerability is something that I think is also applies to public health, as we're hearing here today, and applies to public safety as well. Here's our dilemma. We're going to have acts of God as a certainty. We're going to have likely acts of man, a la 9-11, but we are basically a brittle society. What I therefore propose is that we move away from security as our overarching national priority and move to the notion of resiliency as our core organizing principle for dealing with the threat spectrum we face. Resiliency has, a, first of all, spears us from a lot of the absolutism of security. You hear time and again the mantra in the Department of Homeland Security is, we have to be right 100% of the time, the terrorists have to be right only once. Well, that leads you, therefore, to a whatever-it-takes approach to security until you, of course, run out of resources and then you wing it. But the reality here is that we cannot prevent every act of terror and never will. We certainly can't prevent future tornadoes and earthquakes and so forth. So let's think about instead how do we deal with the reality as an ongoing concern that we're going to have disruptions to our lives and how can we make sure that our society always restores itself, recovers its, its, itself in a way that's true to its values and to its interests. I think that this concept, I'm hoping here, will, take, will get a little more traction. The why in part is also valuable, it's an inclusive process. Inclusive first for all hazards. You don't say the federal government only does terrorism or national security, everybody else comes to yourself. I mean, the disconnect here, of course, just overall resources is we give a lot of money to the federal government, but we don't give much money to states and localities. And so if the higher risk stuff is coming at the state and localities area here, we got to recalibrate this. So we have to have that conversation, and the all hazards approach basically opens that door up. The other is, we, we, the people, have to be involved with that. 
we have to be a part of the preparedness for dealing with that. We obviously have to be in this conversation about resources dedicated to it. And it's also going to be all hands to build the resiliency into our society, at, from the family level to the business level to the kinds of investments we make in infrastructure. All things that are consistent with America's values, not things that potentially put our values at risk as an exclusive reliance on take the battle to the enemy approach often requires. I'm not being anti-taking battles to the enemy. We know where they are, by all means. But the reality is here, we don't in most instances, and this thing is metastasizing quickly. So let me finish by coming back to my port security issue here and illustrate what resiliency does for you in thinking about that threat, one which I'm having a very difficult time getting our government to understand. The nightmare scenario I laid out for uh, the Senate uh, this last spring after the Dubai Ports World debacle was the only way I could politely put that, was this. The, here's what, how I, the kind of scenario I think you should be worried about. It says, one, it starts this way. We start in a factory in Sarabaya, an island in Indonesia that makes sneakers. They make very nice sneakers in high demand by a brand name company here in the United States. This company has joined a program that the U.S. Customs Service, Customs and Border Protection Service, has developed called the Customs Trade Partnership Against Terrorism. What they basically ask companies to do is look at their manufacturing processes and how they do things like low containers and make sure legitimate stuff's there, not illegitimate stuff. And this company takes that seriously, and they put these controls in place. And so they load the container up with nice new sneakers to hit the malls just before the school year starts. And they see, then they seal it. This company goes the extra mile, not lead seal with the number, but the full $1 mechanical seal. Okay, onto the door. We're going great so far. The drainage driver, the truck driver, shows up. He's a local help in the neighborhood. Turns out, it's Indonesia. He's an al-Qaeda operative. He gets the load, instead of going directly to the port of, uh, of Surabaya, takes a stage left and ends up in a warehouse where some of his friends are, and they pop the hinge on the left side of the door so they don't interrupt the seal, open the door, take some sneakers out, and they put a dirty bomb enshrouded in lead to defeat the radiation monitoring equipment here and put it in, close it up. And then the driver takes it to the port. The container is sealed, it's from a legitimate company, and it's loaded on a ship there out of uh, servicing that area. It's basically a floating barge with a derrick that takes a, a few dozen of these at a time, and it ships it off to the port of Jakarta. In Jakarta, they offload the containers there, and they load it onto an inter-Asia liner, which moves 12 to 1,800 containers to the port of Hong Kong. There it's offloaded again. It's loaded on what's called a post-Panamax, a ship too big to go through the Panama Canal, an 8,500 TU ship, which is bound for Vancouver one of our big ports of entry, and because it's, and once it gets to Vancouver, because it's from a safe company, a trusted shipper, it's automatically offloaded and put on a Canadian Pacific rail car, and it's driven across the southern flank of Canada and drops down across the Minnesota border and ends up in Chicago. There it's picked up by a local truck driver who drives it to a distribution center in the Chicago area, and there the hapless employee who's got the job of unstuffing that container opens the latch, sets off the trigger, and sets off the dirty bomb. Here's the issue there. It's not the incident. The dirty bomb, as we learned this morning, is basically conventional explosives with industrial-grade radioactive material sprinkled about. There'll be death around a potentially 100-yard area uh, associated with the container, depending on the amount of explosives. The radioactive material is a Superfund problem. That's not the issue. The issue is what I call the spinach problem the spinach problem as of this mid-September. We don't know where the container was compromised. And you're an elected official. Did it happen in that 
the Chicago Rail Yard? Did it happen en route to the Chicago Rail Yard? Did it happen in Vancouver? Did it happen on the ship en route to Vancouver? Did it happen in Hong Kong? Did it happen in Jakarta? Did it happen in Surabaya? We don't know where it happened. What do you think most of our elected officials will choose to believe about the relative risk? That the whole supply chain poses a risk. And let me add to it here because it's going to be trickier for them. That was a CTPAT participant, but also it went through a new code that we put in place in 2004 called the International Ship and Port Facility uh, Security Code, anointed by the International Maritime Organization to get everybody to embrace security. July 1st, every country in the world had to be compliant with this, this new agreement as a, if they wanted to essentially trade with the rest of the planet. So an a, a, a remarkable, immaculate conception happened on the 1st of July, 2004. The entire world was compliant with the ISPIS code. And so this has gone through an ISPIS-compliant facility, ISPIS-compliant vessels. Everybody had to be one to get in here. The, the Customs Service now also has overseas inspectors. They were in Hong Kong and they were in Vancouver targeting high-risk containers. This was deemed not to be high-risk, so it's cleared. So now you're the President of the United States and we want all the rest of the containers to continue to flow into the United States. On what basis? The low-risk universe turned out to be high-risk, and nobody wants them. Within about two weeks of our closing our ports, which almost certainly what we'll do, the entire global supply chain will essentially go into freefall. It'll, it'll go into a total constipation with all the disruptive effects that are associated with that. What is resiliency about? Resiliency is about looking at not having that situation where a single event shuts down the whole system. Building adequate safeguards and visibility across the supply chain from the factory to tracking it through, capturing data about it as it moves through the system. So if something goes wrong, you can do the forensics to identify where it went wrong and how you can narrow the response. Technologies clearly exist to do this. Cooperation will be critical on a global scale. But if we're not talking about resiliency as a watching principle and you have security, the reflexive response is the best way I'll be secure is to have none of these things moving with all the adverse consequences that flow from that. So, in conclusion, I want to suggest here that there is an opportunity here, and then certainly a lot of research that needs to be done, to recalibrate this whole focus that we're on here now. A, a myopic view of counterterrorism, which is all about taking battles to enemies, to a much broader conversation about can we persist as a brittle society in the context that terrorism will be an ongoing concern and natural disasters will be an ongoing concern? And how do we as a community come together, as a country come together, to address these issues? Not relying on a national security apparatus, but all of us together, pulling together to get us where we need to go. So with that, I hope uh, it shared some questions and comments, but I know we're moving on to the next part of the, podium. Thank, uh, the program. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, and it's a special pleasure to be reunited with my colleague from the Council, uh, Steve Flynn. Let me apologize in the beginning that um, I don't have a Halloween talk. I, I was unaware that we were supposed to be quite as, as, as glum as we are today, and there are real dangers out there. Um, I don't have a Valentine's Day talk either, but um, the theme that's going to run through my talk is that most of the things that people used to worry about in the energy business, uh, and they were principally related to the economic consequences of energy shocks, most of those things aren't really our principal concerns today. That in fact, what we see are energy markets today that are extraordinarily efficient. 
and that most of the things we need to worry about, especially in the national security community, relate to the, the byproducts, the, the collateral damage, if you like, from the way those markets that operate so well and almost always so effectively, the way that they uh, function in practice. Uh, energy, uh, for at least several decades, uh, has not been a water's edge problem. We haven't in the energy business really had a, the problem that Steve Flynn had to overcome right from the beginning, uh, which was that people thought about the internal markets differently from the external markets. And you know when, that somebody's not serious about energy policy when they start talking about things like energy independence and other ideas that are not achievable and actually are probably a really bad idea. That fundamentally what's going on in the energy business uh, has for several decades uh, been a, a matter of the way the, the markets operate globally. I was asked to talk about energy shocks, and a lot of people use the term energy security when they are thinking about energy shocks. And, and what I'd like to do is work through, if you like, three faces of energy security, three kinds of problems um, that folks in the, in, uh, in the national security community uh, and also in the energy business uh, really need to be uh, paying attention to, because there is really no general concept of energy security. Uh, it really depends a lot on where uh, you sit. So first I want to talk about uh, oil. Uh, nobody ever asks anybody who studies energy to be on any of these panels when oil is trading at 10 or $12 a barrel. They only ask you when oil is trading in the 70s and people are talking about $100 and $200 and infinity and so on. So I want to talk first about oil uh, because oil is, what on is what's on most folks' minds. And actually, most energy markets take their cue from the oil price in ways that are, that are really just now becoming fully apparent. Uh, unless you've been living in a, in a cave for a few years, uh, you're, you're aware that energy price, oil prices uh, right now are very high. This slide from BP, uh, the green line on the top, shows you uh, prices uh, in today's dollars. Uh, of uh, typical crude oil uh, over time. And really what's unusual over the last several decades is how oil prices are so much higher than they had been uh, during the bulk of the, uh, the bulk of, this, of the last century. We saw a big uh, two big uh, shocks in the, early, in the 1970s. Uh, then prices were low for an awfully long time. People who study what I do went and studied other things. Uh, and now suddenly uh, they're, they're coming back. And one way to think about energy security in the oil business is to ask yourself, why are prices high uh, again uh, right now? A large amount of the thinking about that question uh, has applied uh, the ideas that were important in the 1970s to uh, the markets today. So here's a slide that shows you uh, oil production and discoveries of uh, significant oil fields. This is from a very, very good study that Exxon has done uh, recently. Shows you the red bars are major discoveries that have been made in the past. Uh, the black line is showing uh, production uh, over time. Uh, and then the green bars are expected finds in the future. And this is a standard picture that people put up when they start talking about this problem because what they imagine is the prices are high today because the supply environment is very difficult. It's, uh, some people even believe that we're uh, peaking in oil. Uh, there's just no evidence whatsoever that we're running out of oil, that these theories that uh, were on the edge, uh, somebody predicted last Thanksgiving day, I think, was going to be the peak production and then it was going to decline from there. Uh, that didn't happen. Uh, we're finding lots of oil, but almost all the fields are harder to get to. They're smaller than they were in the past. They're more expensive, uh, and uh, they're disproportionately in places in the world uh, where it's difficult to do business. Uh, 
And so if you have this supply side uh, orientation, then you're really worried a lot about possible shocks, both in the supply of oil to the world market and the infrastructure that moves oil from fields uh, to, to, uh, to, to final users. In my view, it's the infrastructure side of the equation that's even more worrisome than the, than the, than the potential supply, because we are, as we work on more remote and more complex fields, uh, we're becoming more and more dependent on an infrastructure that is being run uh, to ever tighter uh, standards. So my colleagues uh, here at Stanford in the Energy Modeling Forum did a study on some supply risks, and this next chart just shows you different kinds of shocks, uh, relatively brief, one to six month disruptions in supply, put in the terms that uh, Elizabeth Pate Cornell introduced uh, to us this morning, terms of probability on the vertical axis, and the supply of the shock on the horizontal axis. What you see are the probabilities of small shocks are extremely high. This is an expert elicitation uh, published uh, about a year ago. The, it's extremely likely, almost one if you like. I always um, am hesitant to use the number one for probability of anything. But it's extremely likely that we're going to have lots of, and in some cases, correlated shocks that are relatively small uh, that, that measure one, two, three million barrels per day. In a market like today's market, that's a big deal because spare capacity in today's market might be one and a half or two million barrels a day, and the system itself already uh, doesn't uh, have much capacity to absorb uh, various shortfalls. You can see that in the prices of real markets today. So what I'm showing you here is a curve from last summer of the peak period, the, the period when, when uh, front month oil prices uh, were at their highest and the, the fever pitch of concern about the oil market was at its uh, greatest. And what you see here, these are prices that went up to about $78 per barrel um, for West uh, Texas Intermediate. What you see is that if this reveals what traders think is going to be happening in the future, which is one way to interpret these curves, the curves have a lot of uh, flaws to them, but this is real market data, real people putting real money on the table. What you see is that prices are expected to be high, but then they don't actually decline very much. If you thought what was going on in the world market, the world oil mar market today, was concerns about supply shocks, about brief interruptions in supply, and then people would figure things out, and then supplies would come back on, then you'd expect this curve to drop off actually pretty sharply. And instead, what's going on in the oil market today is that we have the first sustained oil crisis caused not by a shock in supply, but caused, if you like, by a shock on the demand side. Demand has risen much more steadily than almost anybody expected a few years ago. And that demand is coming principally from the United States and also from China and other parts of the world. This is happening, I think, uh, because the world's markets work a whole lot better now than they, than they did in the past. I think there's considerable evidence that the reason we saw economic recessions and severe economic harm caused by the last oil shocks is not so much because of what happened in the oil market, but because of the way that central bankers responded to this. And it's not that the economic consequences of oil prices, to high oil prices today, are nothing. They're very significant and they're very severe, but it's that the markets have been able to respond in ways that um, are, are much more flexible. In my view, the big concern about high oil prices today shouldn't be so much the economic consequences. And I'd like to just talk about, very briefly, about two other consequences that I think are, are much more important. 
One, as Mike mentioned, that uh, at the Council on Foreign Relations, I ran with uh, John Deutsch and Jim Schlesinger a task force on the national security consequences of oil dependency. And we've argued at length in that study, which came out about a month ago, that uh, the principal reason one needs to be concerned about dependence on the international oil market is that this is uh, undercutting, hobbling in some parts of the world, our foreign policy. I think we see this partially at work in Iran. I'm not arguing that the Iranian nuclear program exists only because they have surplus money from oil exports, but instead there's something more pernicious going on. That when oil markets are tight, it's harder to think about what you're going to do in Iran carefully and with uh, conviction. And I think in particular, it's harder for us to work with allies because our allies are also concerned about the consequences for the oil market and also in some cases the consequences for their investments. In a few instances in the world, high oil prices are fueling activities that work directly against U.S. interests. Uh, Venezuela may be the strongest example today, uh, but Russia uh, may not be far uh, behind. In the Venezuelan case, uh, the checkbook that Chavez has is being used to write checks for all sundry of activities, um, uh, some of which are designed specifically to be uh, seemingly irrational unless you think that what they're really trying to do is just annoy the United States. This argument has been rehearsed many times, uh, and I'm not going to go through it in great length again, not because it's not important, but because I think it's familiar. Let me just briefly mention that there are a lot of other ways that high oil prices are coming in and creating risks and, and unusual outcomes in the way the markets operate and the way that our politics operate. And you see that in agriculture today, for example. The best commodity to have invested in this year is corn. Uh, and normally during the harvest, the price of corn goes down because you have a large supply. Uh, this year, the price of corn actually firmed during the harvest, and part of what's going on is enormous amounts of corn are being used for ethanol. Some of my colleagues at FSI are studying this issue, and in particular, looking at the implications of this uh, for food security. What we're seeing already in the corn market is that corn prices are partially taking their cue from oil prices because when you grow corn for ethanol, you, the profitability of those investments depends on the price of oil. Um, I don't think anybody's done the work yet. My hunch is we will see that the sugar market also takes its price from uh, its cue from oil prices because the largest swing supplier for sugar, Brazil, uh, we know from our own work on the ground in Brazil that sugar farmers and distilleries uh, make decisions about whether to channel their sugar crop into ethanol or into sugar uh, based on the price of uh, oil in Brazil, which itself depends on the international price of oil. And you're seeing a lot of effects like this. I think it's going to play out in this country in very unusual ways. Um, for example, Senator McCain, who normally, to a fault, speaks the truth, has now suddenly gotten the religion about uh, ethanol from corn, which is an economically irrational way to make ethanol. But it turns out, to my shock, that a lot of corn is grown in Iowa, and other kinds of important things happen in Iowa early on in the presidential campaign as well. If or when uh, this country takes the advice from the first panel today and we remove our tariff on imported ethanol, um, the price of corn probably will crash because such a demand is being placed in the corn market now for, uh, as ethanol uh, that when you can actually supply ethanol in other ways um, that will severely affect uh, the corn markets and I'm not sure very many people are really paid attention to that. Enough about high prices. 
I want to take a couple moments and talk about the other side of the oil equation because everybody talks about high prices uh, and nobody's paying close enough attention to low prices. So here's the chart that I showed you before. This is the NYMEX forward curve from July, the peak period of fever interest in the oil markets. Um, here's the NYMEX curve from yesterday. Uh, you've seen $15 knocked off the front month of oil already. Uh, and the out months uh, go down as well. And my question I'd like to put to you is, could that go even lower? Could we develop plausible scenarios by which the price of oil could go down significantly lower? I'm not talking $12 the way it briefly traded in the 1990s, but down into the 30s, uh, quite possibly uh, even lower. I'm not going to go through the case in enormous detail, but you get a feel for the argument that you can make by looking at just one country, which is the case of China. When people talk about China and oil, they have an image that every Chinese is on their way to the Buick station to buy a car. And because everyone's about to get on the road, from my own experience in China, if you all got on the road, you'd just be in traffic, which actually doesn't use very much gasoline, and so it was a pretty good policy for reducing gasoline consumption. But if everybody got on the road, then oil consumption in China would skyrocket. And when people read articles about how China contributes a large amount of the increased demand for oil, they imagine that that's what's going on. So this next slide just shows you what Chinese are actually buying in terms of refined oil products. Gasoline, which is still for, for, for small vehicles, is the dominant uh, fuel source, is shown under the heading of light distillates. And what you see in the Chinese market going back to the late 80s is actually fuel consumption of the light distillates is essentially flat. Now, there's some additional fuel being used as diesel fuel in transportation, but that's not what's going on. The real reason that China has been exerting such enormous demand uh, on the world oil market is because of industrial uses of oil. Uh, and a significant fraction of that is small generators that are being used uh, to make up for the fact that the grid system hasn't been able to keep up with, a, with adequate electric supply. The grid system today is catching up. Last year, the Chinese, uh, uh, Chinese utilities commissioned possibly 70 gigawatts of new electric power supply. Nobody really knows. That, that fact alone is somewhat worrisome. 70 gigawatts is uh, Ballpark 1 California commissioned, uh, one of all of California's dedicated power supply commissioned in one year alone. As the grid system catches up, what you're going to see are the fuels that are used for that, principally middle distillates, also some heavy fuel oil. The demand for that is probably going to uh, uh, quite possibly even fall. We saw that you know, in 2004 and 2005. And you can tell similar stories like this all around the world, where what's going on in the oil markets is a lot of other things that when you add them up, actually lead to demand in the future being much lower than today's conventional wisdom. And also, I have said nothing about the supply side, there's an enormous number of supply projects that are, on, that are underway. And you look at these and all of them are being accelerated in one way or another. And if you raise supply more rapidly than people expect and you lower demand a little bit more than people expect, you can paint a plausible story about why oil prices could go down substantially. Now, here's why I think we should be paying attention to this in the security community. Because at the same time this is happening, the big oil producers are getting squeezed. The big countries that produce oil are getting squeezed. 
I'm just going to illustrate this with examples from four countries, Kazakhstan, Nigeria, Russia, and Venezuela. What you're seeing is the costs of production are rising. These are costs in U.S. dollars per barrel of roughly finding and producing oil. Nobody really knows, and I've tried to adjust them a little bit for the different inefficiencies of the companies that dominate uh, these different markets. Uh, these costs today are already, according to very detailed and reliable surveys, double in most countries what they were in 2001, 2002. And so the cost of production, the cost of actually most infra infrastructure investment has risen very sharply. At the same time, the internal price of oil, the, the price that governments expect to get from their oil, uh, that price has risen also probably 50%, maybe 100% in some countries uh, over the last few years. In Venezuela, we think that quite possibly all of the rents that come from oil are being spent on various kinds of short-term, somewhat irrational projects. Uh, Russia has done better than most countries in saving a lot of this, um, but all, even in Russia, the internal price has gone up uh, substantially. In Nigeria, the official internal price, the price that's used for planning the budget, has also gone up by maybe 50% in the last few years and the actual internal price, the price that reflects what the Nigerian government and all of its constituencies are really spending, is now close uh, to the real price of oil that we see in the international market. And so I'd like to suggest and, and close off my discussion about oil by suggesting that we ought to pay attention to this. Because it's not that oil prices need to go down a lot, it's that production costs have come up expectations have come up enormously, and that is squeezing countries in different ways. I expect that the first country that's going to be hurt really, really badly by this uh, is Venezuela. Uh, Russia may actually be able to, to survive this reasonably well because of what they've done on their budget. Nigeria, I suspect, is also going to be in serious trouble. And we should expect a highly fragmented and differential kind of response if, in fact, oil prices come down. This is not the most likely outcome. But this is quite possibly one in four or one in three chance that oil prices will come down in a significant way uh, in the coming few years. I want to talk briefly about two other faces of energy security. When you talk about energy security in the European context, almost nobody talks about oil. Here we talk about energy security and all the discussions are about oil. In Europe, almost all the discussions concerning energy security are about natural gas. And that's for the simple reason that if you look at a map of the natural gas supply into Europe, you see very large pipelines coming from the east, coming from Russia. Uh, the German uh, natural gas supply, about 25 or 30 percent in some parts of the year, uh, comes from Russia. Very large parts of the French and Italian supply comes from Russia. Most Central European countries, except for Poland, derive the vast majority of their gas from Russia. Austria derives, I believe, 85% of its gas from Russia. Uh, Ukraine, uh, 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 and I believe an even higher fraction of this. And so the European context, when we talk about energy security, the discussion is really, in a large way, about the risk of Russian, uh, Russian supply. This was brought into relief earlier this year, right at the beginning of this year, when the Russians cut off the Ukrainians and the Ukrainians cut off the Europeans and everybody bought an extra jacket for a brief period of time. Uh, in our group, we don't think the big problem is politics. We don't think that there are people pulling levers, and some of this is going on in Georgia and so on. We don't think that what's driving this is the political pull. We think that what's going on is the Russians are in the middle of an enormous natural gas crisis, uh, and we will see the full consequences of this in the coming few years. 
This slide uh, from our group um, shows the four major gas fields in Russia um, that account for about 85% of Russian gas production. The red line at the top is the total production that comes from Russia. This is over time measured in European units, billions of cubic uh, meters. What you see is that three out of the four fields in Russia are already in steep decline, and the fourth field we think in the next few years is going to be in decline. The problem in Russia is that even though they have the world's largest gas reserves and resources, uh, they are unable to keep up with the commitments that they have already made internally and in supplying gas uh, to the West. Um, in the gas business, even more than the oil business, it just doesn't matter whether you have the gas underground. What really matters is whether you can get it out of the ground and get it to, the mar get it to market. The gas business is much more infrastructure intensive uh, than the oil business. And the Russians, to put it bluntly, simply have not invested in this at almost at all uh, over the last 20 years. Their infrastructure is incredibly decrepit. Um, there's a lot of interest in outside investors coming into Russia and building new supplies, but that is something that's very inconvenient for Gazprom, and so almost all the Western investors have been kicked out or deterred in the first place. Shell on Sakhalin Island, which is not a project that serves Europe, uh, is maybe in the middle stages of seeing the same thing happen uh, to them as well. So far, this shortfall is being met by buying gas from Turkmenistan. Uh, people who, who add up contracts have come to the conclusion that Turkmenistan has sold perhaps 50% more gas than they can produce next year by contracts. Uh, and so the Turkmens themselves are going to have a huge supply problem. Uh, and this is going to uh, unfold in ways that could ultimately affect the Russian presidential uh, election in 2008. It's a very, very difficult problem for the Russians to be in uh, because they make all their money by selling the gas to the West but they keep their political position, uh, Gazprom keeps its political position by um, selling gas at low prices internally to Russia. Who's going to be hurt by this? The Europeans somehow are convinced that they're going to be hurt by this because they're the large customer for the Russian, uh, the Russian gas. And what you've seen over the last uh, year or so is that even though the EU should be operating as a single entity, in fact, each individual government is running off and doing its own deals with Russia right now. The Germans have put together a complex series of deals, including their own pipeline. Gerhard Schroeder is uh, chairman uh, uh, of the operation that's going to put that pipeline into, into business. Uh, just today, ENI, Italian utility, has announced another special deal with the Russian suppliers. The French are working on a similar special deal. And so just at the time when you'd expect the EU to speak with a common voice, actually on this important issue, um, uh, it seems to be causing them uh, enormous uh, difficulties. The Europeans could be hurt by this situation. I think the larger dangers are actually for Russia itself. And this next slide shows you the cost, the engineering cost, of bringing new gas supplies to the European market from different sources. From the major fields um, uh, where it says $3.10, that's in the middle of Russia, northwestern Russia. There's an enormous amount of gas that has never even been tapped up in the Yamal Peninsula, for example. Uh, in the Barents Sea, the Stockman project, which has now been delayed by several years. These are all projects that are viable and are cost effective at today's prices. Today's prices are in the range of $8. But what's more interesting than this is looking at all the arrows that come from North Africa and come from the Middle East via ships, so-called liquefied natural gas, LNG. 
And I think this is what the Europeans are going to do in response, is they're going to import a large amount of gas from other countries, countries other than Russia. You don't see this response immediately because it takes a while to put these projects together. But if you think your supplier is unreliable and he's actually more expensive than other suppliers, then why would you stick with Russia? And I think for the long term, what the Russians are doing is actually undercutting one of their major sources of revenue, namely gas exports, uh, and also harming themselves for the long term. Let me close with a couple final thoughts. One concerns the issue of gas supply and who's hurt. This is something that Americans have never really worried about. We worried about it during the Cold War because we were concerned that the Germans and the French and other Europeans were going to be under the Russian thumb and that might cause them to be less good allies. We are going to start worrying about this more because the Atlantic Basin is already becoming a single integrated natural gas market through these ships, these liquefied natural gas tankers. Most new LNG projects, for example, include the option of selling the gas to the European market or the U.S. market. And smart traders simply look at where they're going to get the best prices and they send their cargoes that, uh, the direction where the prices are higher. That means that not now, but probably over the next 15 to 20 years, natural gas prices in the United States will partially take their cue based on events elsewhere in the Atlantic Basin. And if the Russian supply continues to be unreliable, that means that when there are crises with Russian supply in Europe, those crises are going to ripple over and affect the U.S. gas supply and prices for U.S. natural gas. And that leads me to the last point I want to talk about, the last face of energy uh, security, which is climate change. A lot of people have been talking about climate change as a security issue because they want to reframe the national security debate to include climate change, uh, partly because there are real security risks there and partly because whenever you label something security, people take you a lot more seriously. I want to talk just about the energy parts of climate change because one of the themes that's run through my talk so far is that in general our expectation is that prices are going to be higher in the future. We need to be wary about the possibility of lower prices, but already the markets are sending very clear signals that prices should be high. You would think that's actually good news for climate change. Because in general, if energy is more expensive, people will become more efficient, they'll start to invest in various kinds of alternatives, and that will incidentally also reduce the emissions of greenhouse gases. I think what's happening is exactly the opposite, and this is the largest concern that the policy community needs to have about climate change. What's happening is that the price of oil has gone up. Whenever the price of oil goes up, the price of natural gas goes up. They work, in some cases, contractually together. In the United States, they work through markets in ways that tie the two together. And the result is that people who used to build natural gas-fired power plants are now building coal-fired power plants. And that matters because natural gas emits half the CO2, which is the main cause of global warming, compared with coal. This slide, I just have a couple, two more slides, I think. This slide shows us power plants that real people have built or are building right now. This is a slide from a fabulous analysis by the Electric Power Research Institute. What you see is that during the 1990s and early 2000s that almost all the power plants that were built are these green bars, which are natural gas-fired power plants. Here in California, we built the largest utility, uh, largest uh, power company in the nation called Calpine, and almost all of its power supply is fired with natural gas. When the price of gas went up, 
People stopped ordering gas plants. Calpine went into bankruptcy. They're in bankruptcy today. And instead, what people did is they started ordering coal plants. And if you look out into the future, the out years on this chart, what you see is the chart starts to shift to black. These are real plants that are, that are in the planning stage or uh, in early construction stage. And if this chart were updated to the situation today, you'd see even more black. In Texas, essentially all new power plants that used to be gas-fired have been canceled, uh, and instead what's being planned is coal. A massive investment of nine gigawatts of coal-fired power plants is underway by the largest Texas utility, uh, TXU. This is really, really important news for the people who are worried about global warming because all of these plants are conventional coal plants with very high emissions of greenhouse gases. And in fact, if you look globally, what you see is that the, the red cylinder on the right is that the emissions of greenhouse gases that are expected from all the coal plants in the planning stage right now globally, those emissions will be as large as all the greenhouse gas emissions from all industrial sources since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, which is shown in the yellow bar or the yellow cylinder on the left side. The coal business, which nobody in the university used to pay attention to, I'm happy to say we are starting a large study in this area. The coal business is an incredibly competitive industry, and it has taken advantage of the fact that um, uh, the, its, its competitors have become much more expensive. And this, I think, is going to be the hard problem, the security problem in the climate area, is to figure out how to burn coal uh, in ways uh, that don't destroy the climate at the same time. And one evidence of the competitiveness of this industry, and here's a picture we took uh, just a few weeks ago outside Shanghai, two new coal plants under construction in Shanghai. This is a city that used to have a ban on all new coal-fired power plants because of concern about pollution. They instead are building an incredible number of new plants. What they're building, though, are the world's most advanced coal plants. The Chinese have leapt to the world frontier. These are very efficient plants, but they still burn coal. They're still going to cause extremely high levels of emissions. And it's evidence that the, the commercial pressure to, uh, to de deliver energy at very low cost, that commercial pressure is a very, very powerful one. And in this case, it's causing uh, some collateral damage in the form of climate change. And that's what I've tried to emphasize throughout my talk today, is that the markets themselves are working extremely well, but it's the parts, the, the outsides of the markets and the collateral damage in those markets, whether it's our foreign policy, whether it's our agriculture politics, whether it's the severe governance problems that are going to come up uh, when price, if prices, uh, oil prices actually come down, it's that collateral damage that we need to worry about. Whereas what we really worried about in the 1970s, the last big energy crisis, was for the most part uh, the economic consequences that I think now we know uh, the, the world economy can actually weather quite well. Thank you. We have time for about 15 minutes of questions. Uh, I'll identify you, if you could identify yourself, and then ask your question specifically to one of our two uh, speakers, I'd appreciate it. And uh, I see Pavel first. Do we have microphones? Great. Uh, I'm Pavel Podvik uh, here at CSAC. And actually, on your, uh, I have a question on your uh, very last point about efficiencies of the market. Uh, do you uh, do you think uh, do you believe or do you think that it would be possible to adjust the to make the markets work by introducing carbon tax or cap and trade or something? Uh, if you could please tell me a few words about it. 
Right. So um, I think in the energy business, there's actually a very similar problem to the problem that Steve Flynn is worrying about and the problem that our lunch speaker was worrying about, which is that if you leave the markets to themselves, they're going to find the most efficient outcome, and they're not going to worry about this collateral damage. So then the idea is, well, we can solve this problem by taxing, in this case, taxing the emissions. The tax needs to be extremely high in order to induce some kind of a significant change in behavior. Example, if you applied to the coal plants in the United States today, the tax on their carbon dioxide emissions that is, that is already exists today in the European market, and then you ask the investors, would you go out and build that coal plant again? The investor would say yes, because it is still, even though the, the, the emissions are being taxed, even though people are worried about global warming, it is still so much cheaper to build a coal plant uh, and supply electricity than it is to use other kinds of sources in, in the near term. I think we're going to find that we're going to need very different kinds of policy instruments in order to get the first new advanced coal plants that have no emissions of CO2 in place or new nuclear plants uh, that Hecker mentioned earlier. I don't see how we're going to be serious about this problem without more nuclear plants. We'll have to be dealing with the proliferation issues at the same, at the same time. But investors won't do that just by seeing a simple tax alone. We're going to need an active policy. And this, is, this cuts very strongly against the grain of what we've done in, in all of our regulation in the last 20 years, which is to liberalize markets, open them up, and expose investors just to, uh, just to price instruments. But exactly the same logic applies to the problem of needles, Tamiflu, uh, rubber gloves, uh, making the infrastructure work, and so on. The markets on their own won't build that capacity, and we're going to need some kind of an additional, uh, additional instrument to make that uh, actually happen. Paul? Paul Stockton at CSAC. Steve, you've uh, made a, a strong call on behalf of resilience, but your own work suggests how hard it's going to be to get from where we are today to where we need to be. Uh, infrastructure is brittle across public and private sectors in a way that's going to be very, very hard to fix. And while it's tempting to think that there are natural incentives in both public and private sectors to head towards resilience, those incentives haven't worked in the past. For decades, we've been underinvesting in critical infrastructure. Why has that been the case, and how are we going to get beyond those impediments today? It certainly is not an easy agenda to tackle. I think one of the real issues that we've gone in cycles through, though, is the role of the federal government in supporting major infrastructure uh, investment. Clearly, in the 19th century, building rails and so forth, going back to the origin of the country, major canals and so forth, these were big essentially had to be driven by central government marshalling large resources to try to push things forward. And when it came, obviously, to the interstate highway system, that was a federal project done largely with uh, states and locals in somewhat opposition because, one, the biggest source usually of local corruption was the local DPWs run by states and localities, but the other issue with all the moms and pops that would be displaced by the interstate highway system. And so, of course, it's the Eisenhower Interhighway National Defense System, as its formal name of the legislation, it was designed to be able to support rapid mobilization of the nation, and also, believe it or not, certainly a bit shocking when we look at uh, what happened uh, with Hurricane Rainer and people getting out of Houston, it was supposedly to help evacuate cities quickly in the event of nuclear war. 
but the recognition here was that, that there was a security imperative as well as a fundamental economic development imperative that required investment in infrastructure. Now, we've gone a long ways from that. You know, now, of course, we can't even talk about raising revenues anymore, as, as you know, as, as the taxes are, are you know, a, a swear in our current political context here. So I'm not sure how you fix, fix infrastructure without revenues, but there is clearly an also positive development in terms of the amount of equity that's, private equity, that's now starting to look at opportunities in infrastructure. All the large financial houses now all have new practices looking at is there a way to create revenue-generating streams for toll roads and other kinds of things out there. Europeans are a bit ahead of us on this, and there's some recognition in waking up here in the U.S. It clearly can't start without an overarching picture of what our needs are. And the sum of the parts of the state and local level are not giving us a whole. I mean, it mystifies me today. I was just at a conference at the beginning of this week on this issue of transport and uh, looking out 10 years. Our Department of Homeland uh, of Transportation, the U.S. Department of Transportation, does have, has no strategic document to say where are we going <coughs> for transportation infrastructure. You know, how much rail do we need? How much ports do we need to develop? How much highways and whatever? There's no master plan. I mean, and we're not talking master plan federally. We just don't have a plan. And so it's very hard to make a case for investment if there's no, not even a plan out there to sort of aim for or even to debate. So a starting point I suggest here is we clearly need a plan, and it, can be inf it should be informed by places like the National Academy of Sciences and the uh, uh, American Society of Civil Engineers and universities who plug our way at it here. And then we've got to figure out how much it costs. And then we will find that there's opportunities. I guess one of the things, I was just in the port of Los Angeles and Long Beach yesterday, meeting with the executive directors and also dealing with the security issues. The case I actually made to them in a talk I did yesterday was there, there is not a inherent conflict with the need to improve capacity to deal with the environmental issues and also to deal with the security issue. These are often do, dealt with as inherently conflicting challenges. The more inefficient a system is, transportation system is, the more uh, environmental emissions that we face. This is basically a big problem in the Port of Los Angeles and Long Beach is the amount of trucks stuck idling because there's not enough surface transportation infrastructure getting in and out of the port. But also the more inefficient the system is, the more difficult it is to secure it, the more difficult it is to police it. So the investment in critical infrastructure that improves the quality of its productivity also, if we integrate environmental concerns built into it, and if we integrate the security kinds of levels of measures that are appropriate for safeguarding them, are create an opportunity. It's a lot easier, like building a house from scratch, making it handicapped accessible. It is a lot easier to deal with that than trying to retrofit a raised ranch home into being handicapped accessible. So there's an opportunity here and a way, I think, to explain to the American people why the investment. By improving this infrastructure, we clearly deal with productivity. These are good jobs, actually, they make the improvement. It also is important to deal our resiliency as a society so that uh, our commitment is that we shouldn't, that, that when we have our young men and women dying overseas to protect us, we shouldn't be such a soft target. We should be making investments to make sure we're more resilient. That's our contribution in part. And then also, if we do it right, we get other benefits like a cleaner environment as well. So I think it's with leadership at the national level, the states and locals just can't do this by themselves then I think we can build a case that says, yeah, that's, that would be investment worth making. The gentleman right here. Yeah. Uh, Josh, right here in the middle. Oh, there you are. Okay. And then, Josh, to get ahead, these two gentlemen from CSAC will be next over here. Uh, Chip McIntosh, could you please comment on making gas from coal? I guess they're doing that a lot in Canada. Um, with the caution that I hope I don't offend my friends in the electric power business. The electric power business used to be not one of the most exciting businesses in the world to be in. Uh, 
Uh, you woke up in the morning and you kind of knew what plant you were going to build. Um, uh, in the last 10 years, you woke up in the morning and you built a natural gas-fired power plant and, and it was fairly clear what to do, at least in the engineering. This has now become uh, one of the most innovative, interesting businesses in the world, bar none, and it's because of the climate challenge. You have all kinds of interesting designs for new nuclear power plants. And, most importantly, you have all kinds of interesting new ideas for, for, for burning coal, including ways of burning coal so that you cut to almost nothing the emissions of carbon dioxide plus all other pollutants so that you can actually achieve an almost zero emission uh, power plant. The leading ideas in that area are to gasify the coal, um, to, to um, treat it a little bit like a, like a refinery where you take the coal, you put it at very high temperatures and you burn it partially and that produces a gas that you can then run to a turbine and the spinning of the turbine allows you to generate electricity with it and at the same time it produces an exhaust that is uh, almost pure pollutant uh, which then makes it relatively easy, it's still not, not free by any stretch of the imagination, makes it, makes it relatively easy to inject that underground into spent oil and gas wells, into deep aquifers. There are a lot of regulatory questions that are coming up and, uh, up and, and so on. But it is extremely promising. And that's just one way to deal with coal. You might also be able to put coal in conventional power plants and separate the, the pollution at the end of the process. Uh, there, there are a lot of ideas that are bubbling to the surface and a lot of things that are going to be uh, tested over the next uh, 10 years or so. Um, so I'm optimistic that we can rise to the challenge, but we need some kind of a, a, a very clear regulatory incentive to do this, whether it's uh, clear and high and rising prices for the pollution or it's direct uh, incentives. And some of that exists right now uh, in U.S. energy legislation, but for the most part, uh, the U.S. has been, been very, very far behind in creating the, the environment in which companies might actually build these things at commercial scale and uh, put them into practice. Please. <coughs> uh, I'm uh, Len Weiss from uh, CSAC. Uh, you answered one of my questions just now by talking about uh, carbon uh, capture and storage. Uh, but I have another one. Uh, have you got figures to indicate what kind of impact you could have on greenhouse gases by greater investments in end-use efficiency as opposed to uh, investments in additional uh, production. Um, there's an enormous controversy about the cost of end-use efficiency. Uh, some people believe that there are $20 bills lying on the floor everywhere and it's just a matter of not being an idiot and reaching down and picking up these $20 bills, meaning going off and learning about how your house leaks energy and how you could drive your car differently, how you could save money by buying a more efficient car and so on. Um, I, I, my view is that there are some $20 bills on the floor and that uh, labeling programs and inf other kinds of information programs and some regulatory incentives will make it easier for us to find those. Uh, a great example is refrigerators. Um, uh, refrigerators have improved dramatically in their efficiency today. Uh, even though the service that you refrigerator supplies has, has, has risen, uh, you now have refrigerators that send ice at you, you have refrigerators that will talk to you if that's what you want your refrigerator to do, all kinds of things like that, and the amount of energy they use to refrigerate is one-third what it used to be. All of that at what appears to be no net cost to the household. So there are some examples like that. I'm deeply concerned, though, that there are a lot of people who are, if you like, drinking the ethanol, 
of the energy efficiency uh, business, and they believe that all we need to do is run around and find these $20 bills and we're going to solve this problem. And you look at the de rising demand for energy uh, across the world, including in this country, uh, population is rising, economy is rising, even with a lot of investment in efficiency, we will not make much of a dent in the climate change problem without fixing the problem at its, at its root, which is in the way we generate uh, uh, energy. If I might just add Please, a, yes. just an overlap between my issue and, and David's here uh, that I found quite startling, and it is one of the critical infrastructures that very few people pay attention to on both the east and west coast, is the uh, inland waterway system. This is an extraordinary engineering achievement that involves 257 locks that allow you to step down from the Great Lakes and get down to the Mississippi. These locks and dams uh, were built to essentially facilitate the, the, the tremendous uh, shipments of agriculture products, but very importantly coal, into western Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and Ohio. A major power plant uses a barge of coal an hour. And they, so this system is very important because there isn't surface transportation access to these plants. Unfortunately, it's not a system we're maintaining. Uh, 30 of the 257 locks were built in the 19th century. 90 of them were built over 60 years ago in projects that were in the 20s and 30s. And uh, there's one in the mouth of the, uh, Louis, uh, the Ohio River in Louisville, the McAlpin uh, uh, Dam and Lock uh, Complex, that uh, the, has an auxiliary one that was built in the 20s, so it was a backup, and then a new one they built in 1960 to accommodate 1,100 foot barges. The tugs typically push 15 barges in tows up in the upper Mississippi. And uh, the Corps was trying to upgrade the old one, so taking it offline, no auxiliary. In time, they could do the overhaul for the new one with the 40-year life cycle. It had to have been done by 2000. They've lost money. They have not been able to finish the auxiliary project. And in 2004, they discovered a major crack in one of the hinges for the door in the McAlpin uh, complex. If they have a spare door, it would take 45 days to replace it. So they knew they'd do emergency repairs, which would take two weeks. So they called the waterway users together. And essentially, everybody told them they did not have two weeks of supplies to su suffer a two-week emergency repair process. They had to give them two months' advance notice in order to basically, and they undertook the repairs in August. They discovered the crack in May, so they wiped their brow. And they made the repairs and happily put the system back online. The head of the Corps engineer at the time, Lieutenant General Strzok, gave a press conference in early August 2004. And so the reason why they were going ahead with this project is the, the, the lights would literally go out, the grid would go down if they didn't make these repairs. And he went on to say that the Army Corps engineers has never had a major project fail. That's our holy grail. But we're getting dangerously close and closer all the time. The budget for maintaining the locks and dams has continued to uh, be cut. And uh, we are, it, it, there's it, the intersection. Now that's just aging infrastructure, not terrorists. And uh, clearly uh, the strange environmental strange and other issues, flooding and so forth here, I compound this here. So there really is an integration of many of these issues, even though we treat them often in, in these isolated pockets. Thank you. I think we have time for one last question. Yes. Okay. Uh, I'm Brown from CISAC, and that's a question for David Victor. Uh, David, uh, I think if anything, you underestimate the problem of the coal fire plants in this country. And the reason is that uh, about most of the coal capacity in this country, about 300 gigawatts, is getting to the, towards the end of its operating life, and we need to be replaced. So there's an enormous problem of capacity replacement in addition to meeting future demands. 
My question is, did you consider capacity replacement as part of your study? Secondly, I've seen uh, estimates by people like uh, Barton Richter uh, that there may be some kind of 140 gigawatts of new nuclear capacity plants existing worldwide. Even if a fraction of this get built, what impact will you have on global warming? Um, well, those are two questions I can answer just um, very briefly. <laughs> very, very good questions. First on the old coal plants. Um, the single most important thing to watch, I think, right now on whether the old coal plants are re actually rebuilt and when is not their engineering lifetime. It's what happens in, in uh, the Supreme Court about something called new source review, which is a crucially important uh, interpretation of our environmental regulations uh, and the new rules for, for regulating new pollutants from power plants. Because there's been a strong incentive to keep old coal plants around longer because they, they operate under different environmental rules that allow higher pollution but, but allow the company to avoid more, uh, more costs. So depending on what you think is going to happen there, we could have a huge surge in new uh, coal plants. I, I spend a lot of time with, with people in power companies, and what they're worried about is not can we get the money to build these new power plants. What they're really worried about, in my view, is if we go off and build one of these fancy new plants that we were talking about earlier, and the plant is more expensive than a traditional plant, or it doesn't work right in the first place. And these are very complex plants. They, they're, they're run more by chemical engineers than by mechanical engineers, and that's a different culture. Um, if they don't work right the way some of the nuclear plants didn't work, are they going to be able to recover their costs? And that's a, that's a very hard problem that goes back to our, inst our regulatory institutions and whether they can credibly commit that companies can go out and make uh, these kinds of risks. In terms of the question of, uh, and I think the jury is out on that question, that's what people in boardrooms are really worried about today. Uh, in terms of the question of whether 140 new big coal, uh, uh, nuclear plants would make a big dent in, uh, in the climate problem, it'll make only a small dent, but we're going to solve the problem lots of dents at a time uh, rather than with one kind of gigantic uh, hammer. Well, I told you that we had the best in the business on these two topics. I think the discussion we just had for the last hour and a half has vindicated my prediction uh, and my statement of probability. So thank you, Steve and David. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.